And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Well, as I'm sure most of you know, the one thing America is known for is our obsession with the hamburger. And for most common knowledge, uh, McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, all of these famous chains that you know started in, in the 60s, let's say. Well, you may not be aware, but every single one of those major chains that you know about today was inspired by a company that was founded in 1923, and that is Kewpie Hamburgers. Uh, it's actually the Kewpie Hotel, which did not provide lodging, but we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But this is, uh, as Gary Flynn, our author today, puts it, a mighty nice history of the Kewpie Hamburgers. Uh, we're going to discuss it today, and you're going to find that the the uh, this piece of Americana goes back almost a hundred years, uh, almost to the day uh, in 1923. So let's get into this. Gary, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, let's start off, if we could, Gary, tell me a little bit about you uh, and and your history with Flint, Michigan, because you might, I don't know if you have a key to the city, but you might be their number one citizen right after Michael Moore. Sure. Well, I'm a, the, I'm a, a Flint native, um, lived in the Flint area most of my life, but uh, and I'm also a published author. Uh, I got three, uh, three books published about Flint uh, and its history. Uh, and uh, the latest book, QP Hamburgers, My Nice History, uh, is my first book that's not exclusively centered to the Flint area because mm. it has a more regional reach in the Midwest. So what is it, I mean, besides growing up there, what is it about Flint and its history that intrigues you so much? Well, there are the good things and the bad things. Um, yep. The problem, Flint, <laughs> sure. the problem, yes, the problem Flint had is it was reliant on one company, General Motors. Yep. So the major employer was the various divisions of General Motors. So um, when the marketplace changed starting in the 1970s, uh, which caught GM um, unprepared, uh, it took a few years to try and uh, produce the vehicles that the public wants. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then in the 1980s, uh, General Motors closed aging plants, uh, including AC spark plug, mm -hmm. the, the former Chevrolet uh, assembly plant along the Flint River west of downtown, mm -hmm. and Buick City. Of course, that uh, led to uh, a population loss uh, with a shortage of uh, funds to run the city, which culminated in... Um, the state taking over the city. Unfortunately, the administrative financial manager um, who was appointed uh, decided to um, switch water sources uh, mm -hmm. from Lake Huron, provided by uh, by uh, the supplier of Detroit water, to the Flint River. Unfortunately, the water press, the water plant, which had been in mothballs for years, was ill prepared 
and they did not put corrosion control. Uh, thus, uh, the coating that uh, protected the, the old lead service lines um, from the water wore away. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. what, what led to the Flint water crisis because the children were being poisoned by the lead in the water. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a double whammy, right? So you have all of the automotive plants leaving the city, which was called Vehicle City. I believe that's the nickname of Flint, Michigan. Yes. And then you had this big water crisis come in. So Flint, Michigan became, you know, the subject of, as they say, late night talk show jokes. Uh, so it was uh, pretty brutal. I mean, Michigan, Detroit, Flint, some of these old, you know, these um, automotive cities have been kind of decimated in the last couple of decades. Yeah, the, we've had some good things happen uh, in recent years, especially with downtown, and uh, mm -hmm. and we've, we're getting some uh, new potential employers. Like they just uh, uh, one uh, one company bought a good a good sizable tract of land that was Burek City uh, to mm -hmm. build a new factory. So we'll see what happens with that. I mean, that that's fantastic. I mean, well, I, let, let's, you know, I don't want to get too grim right off the bat, Gary, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of uh, Flint's tough, you know, so yes. I applaud your efforts to uh, to write books about some of the more interesting parts of Flint, you know, um, and one of them, QP Hamburgers. This yeah. is, you know, this is your latest book and it's a little more upbeat. And there is this is, you know, this really caught my eye, Gary, because, you know, hamburgers Fast food. This is big business in the United States. As a matter of fact, if you ask any, you know, uh, any non-American, especially European, what we're known for, it's they'll probably say hamburgers, maybe hot dogs, but probably hamburgers. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we're known at throughout the world. Right. And you've got so many chains. You know, I'm sure you know this already. I don't have to, you know, and our audience is going to know it, but you got, you know, Burger King, you got McDonald's, of course, Whopper, uh, the Whopper, 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 Whopper song is in everyone's mind during football season. Wendy's, White Castle, Hardee's, you got local chains. I mean, I'm in California, you got, you got In-N-Out here. I'm from Chicago, you know, White Castle's big there. You got Whataburger in Texas. Anyway, they're all, they're all over the place. But most of that history, Gary, really starts with Ray Kroc in the 1960s with McDonald's, but your book in QP Hamburgers goes way back. QP uh, Hamburgers, you know, the hamburger, Hamburgs, I should say, uh, the QP Hamburgers goes all the way back to the 20s and is the second oldest hamburger chain after White Castle. So let's, I mean, let's start there. Uh, I'm going to go back a little earlier than that, but let's just start talking about the brief history of, you know, hamburger chains in the 19, let me say that again, the 1920s, 100 years ago. Oh, yes. Uh, and, of course, it began with White Castle that was founded in mm -hmm. 1921, which uh, was a simple uh, hamburger stand. Uh, it was in a small building. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, because people did not trust hamburgers back then, uh, the White Castle wanted to make it clear that uh, their burgers were made uh, under sanitary conditions. And the success that White Castle had uh, spawned imitators. Uh, the probably most notorious was White Tower, which looked right. uh, initially like uh, <laughs> yeah, they looked initially like White Castle wannabes. But yep. White Castle successfully sued, forcing White Tower to change the restaurant's design to look less like White Castle wannabes and uh, pay some royalties to White Castle. Yeah, now let, that's a great place to stop because. 
You, 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 you said the magic words there. You said people didn't trust meat at the time. This mm-hmm. is extraordinarily important. So I want to go back to the turn mm-hmm. of the I mean, we're going way back here, Gary. The turn of the century, ni- you know, 1906, Upton Sinclair publishes The Jungle, which is a fictional tale, but it's really, you know, kind of an expose of the Chicago stockyards and how cattle and meat are, are being treated, how it's unsanitary conditions. You know, people did not want to eat meat at the time. And so, you know, 1921, that's coming, you know, what, 15 years, if my math is correct, after the publication of that book, you know. Um, so this was a very precarious time for meat. So it was important. And I think... You know, wasn't White Castle the first to have, you know, kind of the um, the grill and the, uh, the the kitchen to be visible to the public? Yes, uh, to allow the public to see the hamburgers cooked. Yeah. And and they had the little. Um, so for people who don't know, I, I don't. Are you a fan of White Castle burgers? Are you? Uh, I have to admit, like, I, I've never, there is a White Castle where I live, but I've yeah. never been to a White Castle. You've never not even for research purposes. Well, I did take pictures of uh, the local White Castle to make comparison Gary. purposes in my book. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, what are you doing to me here? Well, so all right, all right, all right. So let me tell you about White Castle. So I grew up on them. Uh, they were sometimes, you know, they're colloquially called sliders. You know, my mom would call them maggot pies because of all the uh, the onions that you would find in them. <laughs> but for those who don't know, they're very tiny, small, square hamburgers. Probably, I, I don't know, maybe the size of your palm. Maybe you know, roughly about this big, small. You, the, the goal was to buy them by the, the sack. So you'd buy, you know, 10, 20 at a time. And I remember, Gary, this is this is this is how sick I am. When I was in college, they had, uh, you know, you could get frozen, frozen White Castle burgers. And my college had them for uh, I'm not going to go into this story, but my junior year, I was able to get two meal plans. So I had like three thousand dining dollars plus, you know, three meals a day. And I spent all those money, uh, all that money on frozen pizzas and White Castle hamburgers. So I'm very familiar <laughs> with, with them, Gary. Uh, yes. And I'm very I'm sorry that you aren't that 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 uh, disturbs me. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, uh for those who don't live anywhere near a White Castle, supermarkets sell frozen White Castle sliders. Sure do. And you've never had those either? Uh, no, I ha- Well, actually, I'm more oh vegan. Uh, uh, <laughs> that explains it. You should have yeah. said that. Start off with that, Gary. you got to yes. let me know. Yes, all right. Uh, all right. Fair enough. Yeah. For example, the the QP, this, the nearest QP from where I am is in mm-hmm. Lansing, Michigan. Uh, okay. And they offer a garden variety olive burger. Uh, so when I had my book signing... Uh, Earlier this month, uh, at the Lansing QP, uh, I enjoyed the the vegan olive burger, and it was good. Interesting. Well, we're going to talk about the olive burger because that's kind of one of the unique things about QP hamburgers that that I found really interesting. So let's talk about this, right? So let's get into QP. So QP, I think it's founded in 1923, and you know, briefly. They came and went. I mean, they exploded. I think you you offer some um, not concrete data, but some some data that they maybe were at 400 locations by World War Two and then trailed off. You know, they almost completely trailed off to a trickle by the time McDonald's was exploding, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so um, let's go back to 1923 Tell me about these. They're called the it's the I think it's QP Hotel Hamburgs. What a weird name for a place that literally doesn't even have lodging. So let's let's go to the beginning here, Gary. Yes, it started with just a simple wagon as a hamburger stand, uh, which uh, was found. Yes, which was found. <laughs> it was founded by Sam Blair, who was a middle aged man out of Indiana who uh, 
had several jobs uh, over the years before he moved to Flint uh, with uh, just some pocket change. He got the stand and, um, and found space on Harrison Street in downtown Flint uh, to set up the stand. The stand became very successful and it didn't take too long for him to decide he's going to license the QP name uh, to other uh, establishments uh, with the oldest mm -hmm. vibrant one being in Lansing. Got it. And there's one thing, you know, one thing I forgot to mention really quickly here. Uh, uh, um, I'm going to go back to White Castle just for a second. What made them interesting is in 1916, 10 years after Upton Sinclair, they created, um, uh, Walter Anderson created a way to fast cook hamburgers. And this is like the beginning of fast food, how you could quickly cook these things, you know, especially if you're trying to sell them in bulk. And then they were incorporated in 1924. And I just don't want to leave this, this cute, cool little nugget out of the interview. The name of the company was White Castle System of Eating Houses Corporation. That was the, the, the full name. Uh, so that's going on. So uh, that's going on, uh, you know, concurrently to QP. So it starts out as this wagon uh, and Samuel Blair. Let's talk about him for just a quick second. You know, um, he was an iron molder. I'll be honest, I don't know what that is, but it sounds like hard work. Uh, he sold vacuums. He sold life insurance. He even operated orchards and specialized in horticulture. I mean, this guy was kind of doing it all. Was that all, did that all happen before he opened the stand or during yeah. or after? Yeah, before he opened the stand. Wow, okay. So what is an iron molder, do you know? Well, I guess uh, the probably did castings, like say if you, uh, made cast iron stoves so they would have okay. to uh, so i guess he made cast iron stoves okay fair enough that's about as good as a guess as i had uh so what now so he opens it and it's called the qp hamburg hotel right is that or the hotel Q hamburgs qp hotel was the official name back then now why gary why in god's name did he call a hamburger stand a hotel because you couldn't stay there you know uh there's no lodging unless you wanted to sleep in the wagon and i don't think he really allowed that unsanitary yeah uh, why it was called a hotel when it didn't offer lodging well yeah it got, that got lost to time we don't know we don't know the answer <laughs> Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, now he also, and I actually really love this part, Gary. Uh, he called his sandwiches Hamburgs instead of a hamburger. Why? Why was that? Was he really into the the German pronunciation, or was this like just something that he wanted to use for use for marketing purposes? Well, because you would think that ground beef. Uh, I guess that maybe the origins were in Hamburg. Mm -hmm. So years ago. At, when I go to supermarkets and I see ground beef, they call them Hamburgs or Hamburgs. Right. <laughs> so that's why, I, I mean, I, I love it. I think it's it's a lot of fun. And they kept that for a long time. I think even today, they're still called Hamburgs, right? Well, nowadays they're called Hamburgers. So oh, that's okay. how it is uh, on the book's cover. Uh, Got it. And there's your book. Uh, for those watching us on YouTube, we do have a beautiful copy of Cupy Hamburgers, A Mighty Nice History, and that is M-I-T-Y. Why, why, why is Mighty spelled like that? I actually didn't, I don't think I have any idea why that is. That was a slogan uh, with the M-I-T-Y, Mighty Nice okay. Hamburgs. Okay, got it. <laughs> and, and the name, right? So it's Cupy Hamburger Hotel. And uh, the name comes from... Uh, this was a cool little um, rabbit hole I went down, Gary. Uh, Rose O'Neill created the, I don't know if it's called Q-Pie, K-E-W-P-I-E. Yeah. I don't know if that's, the, is that the pronunciation, Q-Pie? Uh, uh, Q-P, 
K-E-W-P-I-E, pronounced okay. Kewpie. However, um, for the hamburger chain, Sam Blair decided to alter the spelling for trademark purposes, K-E-W-P-E-E. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, look, you got to get that. You got to have that patent, right? Um, mm-hmm. But she's a, a really interesting character. I don't know how much you looked into her, you know, but she created paper dolls and then created these cupies, which were at the time they were porcelain dolls. They look like cherubs or Cupid. Um, they're kind of like naked babies with a strange mohawk uh, spiky well, like a triangle point at the crown of the head uh, kind of strange little characters but these were you know they were created from a 1909 comic strip and they were produced up until the 1990s i think and it's even a mayonnaise in japan i don't know if you knew that but there's QP mayonnaise i'm guessing not a part of the hamburger yeah, chain right uh, i i've seen those too have what do you so what do you know about did you look into rose at all now rose o'neill um she uh, was inspired by uh, Baby Cupid images, uh, so mm. she she made a comic page, which was published in women's magazines, called Cupyville, with several different Cupid doll designs uh, in each monthly comic page. Got it. And so, uh, so did how did their kind of connection work? Did was Sam did Samuel Blair seek out Rose? Did Rose like eating his hamburgs? How did their how did their connection work? Well, um, it's kind of disputed. Uh, okay. One story on Muncie, Indiana, uh, was about the the about the uh, Rose O'Neill not only approving the uh, the Cupid hamburgers, but also supervising the uh, Cupid doll sign designs. Oh, okay, okay. And and with Toledo, uh, where Cupid was based for decades. Uh, the uh, owners of uh, QP in Toledo, who, by the way, uh, the, uh, the founder of uh, QP in Toledo bought the rights to QP, so he was able to expand the chain uh, further. Mm-hmm. His name was uh, Edwin Adams. And uh, when uh, Rose O'Neill approved the use of the QP doll design, uh, he had, she had one stipulation. The wings mm-hmm. had to be clipped. Okay. Why was that? Well, so that uh, it would not be a direct imitation of uh, Rose O'Neill's Cupidol designs. Got it. Okay. I mean, you know, the lack of wings, I mean, they look identical. Like when you look at the picture and you look at her drawings, they're pretty close. They're they're <laughs> they're pretty close. Yes. Uh, and so here's, some, here's an interesting fact that I dug up. In, in uh, At San Diego Comic-Con, which is the largest comic convention in the country, last year... In 2022, Rose O'Neill was inducted into the Eisner Award Hall of Fame, which is that's a pretty big award for an for an artist. And her, she has a a, a home in Missouri, which mm-hmm. I understand is now a museum dedicated to her yeah. legacy. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. She's 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 fantastic. Uh, so um, so let, let's talk about Edwin Adams here for a second. The way I understand the history, you had Samuel Blair running the QP stand, he's licensing out a little bit, and that's in 1923. By 1926, just three years later, he's selling all the rights to Edwin Adams. Is that right? Just three years? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it seemed that uh, that Sam Blair, is, uh, he was middle-aged at that time, uh, and he was content okay. to operate his Flint uh, restaurant, which, Got well, it. 
beyond the simple hamburger stand, it became a larger hamburger stand, which evolved into a full-size restaurant at the same location. As for uh, uh, Edwin Adams, he was a young man, about 22, when he opened his QP uh, in Toledo. And so he, he licensed the design. He also came up with a standard design uh, for many of those QP locations, uh, of which mm. one, one still survives at the flagship QP location in Lima, Ohio. Right. Right. Um, and there was, yeah, I, I, we're going to get to the precipitous drop off in a second. But yeah, so there's Lima, Ohio's got the, like the flagship place. Um, so in, you know, this is kind of interesting. So in, in, you know, while Sam, I, I forget, you know, he was an iron molder for 30 years, you know, running a QP stand. If he could sell it off, I'm guessing he wanted to retire after working hard for so long. Uh, but, you know, Samuel Blair created his own menu. And each restaurant he licensed had their own menu, which is, I mean, this to me, Gary, is such a foreign concept in today's age of homogen uh, of homogeneity. Is that a word? Homogenous uh, menus. You know, when you got McDonald's, if you go to a McDonald's, if I go to the McDonald's down the street or I go to a McDonald's in Saudi Arabia, they're the same place, basically. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, Ray, this was not yeah. the case with QP. Right. Ray Kroc kept his uh, McDonald's licensees on a short leash. Hundred percent, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Sam Blair and Edwin Adams uh, uh, gave no leashes. For example, I'll just mention the Olive Burger. Uh, Sam okay. Blair's Olive Burger, which is still served by uh, the local spinoff Halo Burger, uses loose sliced olives. Meanwhile, the QP Burger in Lansing, the uh, Weston's QP Burger, currently operated by Autumn Weston, her great grandmother came up with a secret olive sauce. That, right. is still, that is still served by the Lansing QP today. Yeah, that's a great story. We're going we're gonna to get into that in a second because that, that's a fun story. But I, I love that there, I mean, every location is different. I mean, it like nowadays, right, Gary? Like nowadays, this is very kitschy. People be very into going and getting different, you know, going to different places and getting different um, menu items. But I imagine, especially during the heyday of the fast food explosion, this is a strange concept because if you look at any of the major fast food chains, they all have the same menu everywhere. You know, these national commercials that get stuck in your head, they're promoting, you know, the McRib is available in Seattle and in, you know, uh, uh, Florida, right? I mean, no matter where you go, you're getting it. Not the case with QP. But here's something else that's interesting. You mentioned the Olive Burger. So Samuel claims to have invented the Olive Burger, the Deluxe Burger, and the Flat Bun, and is given credit for curbside uh, service and the drive through those are pretty big innovations in the fast food world. Yes, uh, the QP in the in Flint uh, introduced the drive-through window, and uh, mm -hmm. QP's original location in Lansing also had their drive-through window. That's interesting. And the um, and these were, I mean, this was a huge influence in the fifties, right? So he's doing this in the twenties. We got to remember. I really want to give. One of the things I think is always important and we forget about in our day and age is context, right? We're talking about the 1920s. This is the Gilded Age, you know? This is, um, you know, Calvin Coolidge's president. This is before the Depression. This is this is 100 years ago. He's doing things that don't catch on until the 50s. You know, when you have, you know, like how Sonic Today, another wild fast food chain. Uh, none of these people that I'm name dropping, Gary, none of them are sponsors of my show, which is an absolute shame. But, you know, Sonic... 
has this whole retro feel of dry, you know, eating in your car, uh, people coming out on those roller skates and, you know, delivering to your to your car, like in the Flintstones. Uh, this is something that he created 30 years before it was popular. Yes. Uh, of course, the downside with the uh, drive in restaurants is uh, in cold climates, uh, many of them uh, are closed for the winter. Right. Fact, uh, <laughs> yeah. Of course, Flint had a Sonic, but uh, that got replaced by, well, uh, Chick-fil-A is being built on where it used to be. Oh, my. What a shame. Uh, I, I do like Chick-fil-A, but, uh, but that's a shame. You know, I mean, I just went to an In-N-Out Burger. You can get a box and eat in your car, uh, which is something a lot of people do, kind of a throwback from the 50s. Uh, and, you know, I think, I mean, especially with COVID, people very much curbside everything kind of kind of came back. And we realized, why do we want to spend more time with other human beings? At least that's something uh, that I learned. Um, another thing that I learned is Samuel Blair was ha- had some very interesting slogans. Cupy had some some fun ones. And so his he trademarked the slogan along with Cupy. A Hamburg pickle on top makes your heart go flippity flop. That to me seems like a mouthful. It's a little awkward, but I said it to a couple of the people and they really liked it. Um, how popular was that saying? Oh, it's extremely popular. It's on the really? it's on QP's trademark uh, hamburger wrappers. Okay. It's also a trademarked. Uh, in fact, uh, the previous operator of Halo Burger wound up being in litigation with QP over the unauthorized use of the QP burger wrapper. Okay. So, so unfortunately, uh, Haleburger, which spun off from QP in 1967, is not allowed to promote the QP book. <laughs> there, you know, it's interesting how, you know, how this is one of the second oldest chain. In a lot of ways, you know, it's un- the QP story is both to me a really cool regional story of of innovation uh, and really a man being ahead of his time. But on another on another note, it's kind of a depressing story of making when you make one or two bad business moves, you can really destroy your brand. And so, you know, uh, I don't want to I want to talk about that in a second. That's a little teaser. But let's I want to finish up with Samuel Blair here, because in your book, you talk about uh, I think you put. Uh, a whole story about Samuel Blair's fourth marriage, which is, cr- I mean, this dude lived a life, Gary. Yes. Uh, and, and this is very quickly, I don't know if you can summarize it in one or two minutes, but uh, this is really the Samuel Blair life. Can you talk about that fourth marriage? And I, I'll try to color in the strange details yes. if you pass oh, over yes. them. This would make a nice comedy. Uh, Certainly. Yeah. In 1941, uh, uh, Sam Blair married a woman 50 years younger than him. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing is, uh, on their honeymoon, they brought along his third wife. <laughs> and it was and it was the and it was the woman he's marrying. Uh, her name was Betty. She, this was her third marriage, I believe, at 21, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? All right, so he, so then and then he brings his third wife Opal along on their honeymoon. <laughs> so either that's super freaky and uh, it's pretty exciting, or this is a very strange set of circumstances. <laughs> very strange. Uh, so uh, the press had a field day over this. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. So uh, I mean, so if I get some of the details right, Betty stayed with Opal, the third wife, um, for their first two honeymoon nights. And he called. Basically, she called her mom, and 
Opal called Betty daughter, which is super bizarre. Uh, you know, problems started when he took his teeth, when Samuel Blair took his teeth out at dinner. Uh, and I think at somewhere along this, this whole event, Opal, the third wife, is trying to get to Alaska, which is why she goes along. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, it, it gets wild, right? And then they end up getting divorced right after that, and it becomes a complete field day. Uh, but this is is this pretty indicative of the type of chaos Samuel Blair brought into his life? I guess so. Um, <laughs> he had a very colorful life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he sure did. Um, all right, so let's go back. You mentioned Halo Burger. So, you know, people listening, what, what is this guy talking about, Halo Burger? I thought we were talking about Cupid. Well, you know, if I understand this correctly, when, when uh, so Samuel Blair retires in 1944, right? He had a, a manager of his Cupid location named Bill Thomas, who the, he then gave a long-term lease and basically said, hey, you can run my QP location. Uh, I, I don't know about into perpetuity, but for a long time. And that's kind of a nice little theme here is a lot of people work their way up at these hamburger stands, become manager, and then become owner, which is kind of cool. So let's talk about Bill Thomas and how his relation to Samuel Blair and QP. Yeah, if I remember right, uh, Bill Thomas began working for Blair in 1938. Uh, oh, wow rising up to be manager of uh, the, the QP. And so um, after uh, Sam Blair died in 1945, uh, his estate uh, continued the long-term lease. And under the visions of the will, uh, they had to wait for the grandchildren to become of legal age. But in 1958, uh, Bill Thomas bought the original QP on Harrison Street, uh, the restaurant that developed out of that simple uh, wagon. Wow. In, in 1951, uh, Bill Thomas opened the second QP uh, in the former Burner's Ginger Ale. Ale let's try this again. The Burner's Ginger Ale outlet uh, yeah. uh, on South Side and Street, which is now yeah. the oldest former QP in Flint. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's funny because I was looking at that place. So Werner's Ginger Ale worked out of there, and I had no idea. I did a whole fascinating nouns episode on whiskey and how it's barreled and everything. Ginger ale, they aged it, barreled it. I mean, they treated it almost like a spirit. I mean, they were pretty serious about their their ginger ale, uh, which is crazy. I won't go down that rabbit hole. But so this is where things get interesting. I'm going to fast forward a little bit, Gary, and then we're going to go back in time. So let's fast forward to 1967, arguably the most infamous year in QP history. So tell me what happens and, and what are the results of that? Well, Edwin Adams out of Toledo demanded a full franchising arrangement mm -hmm. for, for the QP restaurants he, he licensed, but most of them objected. So the number of QP locations dropped from 60 to 6, with the local uh, QPs in Flint renamed Halo Burger by Bill Thomas. Right. And so this was kind of interesting. And I'm curious, you know, because you mentioned that there were 60 locations. I mentioned 400 earlier. World War Two was a strange time in this history for literally every industry. And the hamburger industry is is no, you know, it, it was was absolutely no exception. And it seems like QP flares up and disappears, you know, before McDonald's really takes off. But I'm wondering, Gary, is there any connection between Ray Kroc, 
his expansion of McDonald's and his demand for full licensing and short leash with Edwin Adams seeing that wanting to make more money, wanting to take it national. Did that influence his decision to start charging this full franchising fee without a lot of extra support? I believe so. Uh, in fact, uh, around 1980, uh, the, uh, the later owners of uh, QP and Toledo, uh, a pair of real estate developers, uh, they licensed a QP uh, in Flint, not connected with Hilberger at all, but must have caused confusion uh, mm -hmm. and and gave headaches uh, to to uh, Terry Thomas, Bill's son, uh, who took over after Bill died. Uh, so he fielded phone calls uh, about uh, why is that QP because. Even today, older Flintites still call Hilleberger's Cupies. Interesting. Well, and it's kind of, I mean, when you think about it, right? So what? here's what happened, just to give a quick summary. Samuel Blair opens the first Cupie, as you said, based on his wagon that he was originally selling hamburgers out of. Uh, he, he gives it to Bill Thomas, long-term manager. He starts running the Cupie. He does this for, what, 30 years? And then... The new owner of the QP franchise says, you need to give us profit sharing. They say, we don't want to do that. We changed to Halo Burger. And then that Halo Burger, so our, the original QP location is now an entirely different named burger, state, burger location. Mm -hmm. And Halo Burger then goes on to have five or six other locations. It expands as a separate entity. So essentially, if you really think about it, all the Halo Burgers are the true um, progeny of the original QP, correct? Yes. I mean, that's pretty interesting when you think about it, right? Like that it's different, it has a different name, but it that's really the legacy of this particular industry. How does Terry Thomas take that legacy? You know, does he, is he pretty serious about it? Well, he uh, was very serious about it. Uh, however, as time went on, uh, Terry Thomas uh, was kind of hoping uh, to get, either get the next generation of Thomases to run it, but I guess they weren't interested. They had hoped to get the employees to buy Haleberg, but they couldn't get the financing. So he sold uh, Haleberg to Deutsch Enterprises, which uh, mm -hmm. was a, a franchisee of, uh, well, originally Subway, but later mm -hmm. Taco Bell. Mm -hmm. And he made some changes. He wanted to expand, uh, but he cut a lot of corners. In fact, Deutsche Enterprises almost ruined Haleberger. So, oh, wow. so Deutsche Enterprises uh, put Haleberger on the market. And Halo Country LLC uh, was founded by a pair of Detroit area entrepreneurs who uh, mm -hmm. enjoy going to Haleberger while uh, going up north. Uh, they have a location in Birch Run uh, between Flint and Saginaw. And uh, so he decided to keep the Haleberger legacy going. And so... Uh, Halo Country LLC is the current operator of uh, the Flint area Halo Burgers. In fact, That's, yeah, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, Halo Burger, having derived from the very first QP, is celebrating a centennial. Yeah, this year, right? Yes. 2023. Yeah, yeah this yes. is 100 years of QP. Mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting. So, you know, Edwin Adams, I mean, this is kind of the, the a fascinating part to me is Edwin Adams buys, you know, QP early on. And, it, you know, this terrible decision 
really changed the course of QP history because all the original QPs are now Halo Burgers. He had 60 franchises. They went down to six. And I think there might be five now. Um, but, you know, everything was kind of completely thrown out of whack. Did he at any point say, hey, maybe we, I should, you know, maybe relax this deal a little bit or I'm going to lose all, you know, I'm going to lose everything? Uh, apparently it was probably too late. Uh, of course, uh, I went to... Uh the Toledo Public Library to look up some more material, uh, but uh, the subsequent owners, uh, after uh, Edwin Adams died, his widow Hortense uh, ran it for mm -hmm. a short time before selling uh, Q uh, the Toledo QPs and uh, the rights to QP to uh, mm -hmm. the uh, to uh, real estate developers. But then the Toledo QPs disappeared in the mid 1980s. And so the trademark rights to QP were transferred to the operators of QP in Lima, Ohio, where there are three locations. And I mentioned the Lansing QP. There's also one in Racine, Wisconsin. So there are five QP locations left. Got it. Okay. And the one in Lansing, this one is a great one. You kind of talked about it earlier. You kind of teased it a little bit. But this, from what I understand, is the oldest license licensee uh, yes. in, in of all of them. Fourth generation Weston family is owning it. And they are the creators of the Olive Burger, which I believe is only available at that location, correct? Yes. Although there are other imitations of Olive Burger sold uh, mm. in mid-Michigan, centered around Lansing. Are there, so who else is, who's copying, who's knocking that off? I, well, there's quite a few. Uh, last month, there was an Olive Burger Festival uh, in Lansing. <laughs> at the, it was, okay. It, it was held at... It was held at Jackson Field at the Lansing Lugnuts Ballpark. Uh, really? I did, not I did not have the book yet, but I had the page proof. So I uh, uh -huh. had a display uh, of, uh, of the different uh, QP articles pertinent to Lansing. And they mm -hmm. also had uh, a notebook with the page proof so people could read them. But, uh, Great. but uh, apparently, uh, Arnold Weston had a catering commitment. So I was the only one representing QP. Uh, at the at the Alleburger Festival, I made up a sign. Uh, Unbelievable. Which I which I uh, put on on a pole and uh, just walked around and uh, I got a lot of attention. Uh, even though uh, I was saying I'm pushing the book, not the burger. <laughs> That's great. Did you get? Did you sell any advanced copies? Uh, oh yes, I had some advanced copies uh, awesome. that were sold through uh, the various outlets such as Amazon and Barnes and Noble sure. and so on. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I love that. That's that, that's great. Um, you know, it's funny how. So you mentioned you said the Lansing Lugnuts. What are the? Is that a minor league ball team? A minor league ballpark. Yes. Oh, I am. I've gotten really into minor league baseball. Uh, there's a ton in 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 Southern California. Actually, all of California. So who's the um, who's the affiliate for the for the the Lugnuts? I believe they're associated with the Oakland Athletics. Really? Wait. Oh no. Wait. Really? I thought the. That's fa that's fascinating. I thought there was one out here. There's, there's several minor league teams, so it's not the the Lions, the Tigers. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the Detroit no. Tigers. I believe the the West Michigan Whitecaps out of Grand Rapids is the farm team for the Tigers. <laughs> you sound like a fan. You sound like a minor league fan. <laughs> is that true? Do you like to go to the games? Well, it's less expensive than taking a Tiger game at Comerica Park. 
Even now, I mean, they're terrible, but uh, they might be. I think they're actually good this year. I think they're good this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah minor league teams, they're the small. I love that that small field. Um, so that's that's awesome. So the Olive Burger and, you know, just like minor league ballparks, right? In a lot of ways, what's kind of cool and the Westing location is is uh, a perfect example of this is that these are family owned and operated. And even if it's not family, these are long term managers, people with commitments to these particular establishments. You're not going to see that at a McDonald's or a Whopper or a Whoppers or a, or a Burger King or anything like that. This is a very kind of special bond these people have with the uh, with the restaurants. Yes. Uh, the Weston's Cupy Burger is a lunch place. It's only open uh, Monday through Friday during the lunch hour, I guess, 10 to 4 of the hours, if I remember right. Uh, really? But it's a but it seems to be a family affair uh, with the uh, with Alden Weston's father and even the uh, some uh, nieces and nephews uh, uh, running the place during the summer. Wow. That, so, I mean, yeah, it, it's definitely all family. I, you know, I, I love that. Um, so, I, you know, I want to talk about something else really quickly here because I, I don't want to run out of time before we mention something that I think might be one of the most interesting uh, parts of this story, right? In, in some ways, the lasting legacy because Halo Burger should be the lasting legacy of QP, and it isn't. You know, some of these, some of the, the locations themselves are whittling down, but the influence hasn't, Gary. And I want to talk about Dave Thomas, not Bill Thomas, Dave Thomas, and how QP's inspired, probably inspired in and out as well, but it 100% inspired the creation of Wendy's. How did this come about? Well, Bill Thomas... Uh was, uh, well, he, he was an adoptee. He was born Dave, Dave to Thomas, a, Dave Thomas, yes, on, Dave Thomas, Dave Thomas. Yeah. yeah. Dave Thomas, uh, was born to an unmarried couple and put up for adoption. Uh, unfortunately the adoptive mother died. So the father had to move from town to town seeking work. And during the summer, uh, he, uh, was left in the care of the grandmother in Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo has a, had a QP, uh, and so, Dave Thomas uh, uh, liked to have uh, food at that QP. And so um, he developed, uh, he wanted to uh, run his own restaurant. And uh, he uh, wound up uh, running a, a restaurant. Uh, and he, he dropped out of school to do that, if I remember correctly. He dropped yeah. out of school to work in Texas at a place called the Hobby House before he went to the Army. So he was doing this really early on. Oh, yes. And the Hobby House uh, got a visit from Colonel Sanders, who uh, wanted the Hobby House to uh, to uh, serve his Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, the the Colonel Sanders, Harlan the, Sanders. The, the I Colonel mean, Sanders. What a story, Gary. What are the odds, right? I mean, this is like you know Michael Jordan going to LeBron James's high school to watch a game, right? I mean, you got C Colonel Sanders coming to uh, a random restaurant where Dave Thomas is working as a as a cook or whatever he was doing there. Yes, and so Dave Thomas uh, uh, took over some uh, some uh, marginal restaurants and streamlined the menu. Uh, mainly to offer Kentucky Fried Chicken and uh, some small fixings, and uh, they became successful. So 
when Colonel Sanders sold well, hold on, I want to want to back up a little bit. Hold yeah. on, hold on. I, I don't gloss over this. So when Colonel Colonel Sanders was going to the Hobby House, basically saying, "Hey, look, I've got this cool way to fry chicken, and I've got this unique blend of spices," you know, as we see in the commercials all the time, mm-hmm. and so he wanted to go to the Hobby House and say, "Hey, do it my way. Use these 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 spices, and I just want you know, I think it's five cents royalty on each chicken sold." He just wanted a little a little taste of the profit, no pun intended, and that's how Dave Thomas got involved. And, you know, the sales were strong. People wanted to do this. And if I understand it correctly, Dave, Dave Thomas was really people wanted to take the chicken and go home with it. They didn't want to eat in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And he invented the cardboard, that famous cardboard bucket that you yeah. chicken gets carried out in. Um, he invented the red and white revolving bucket with the Colonel Sanders face in it. Yes. Of course, it's been redone over the years. But he, I mean, early on, this guy is not only, and that's before he creates Wendy's. I mean, he's influencing one of the biggest fast food chains of all time. Yes, uh, but unfortunately, the uh, owners of KFC and uh, and Dave Thomas uh, had their differences. So, mm-hmm. so Dave Thomas left KFC and uh, worked for another outfit, which uh, developed uh, Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips while still desiring to make his hamburger restaurant. And among his influences was the QP in Lima, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And and eventually he built. He developed the first Wendy's uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, and I want to make, you know, I want to gloss over that. I mean, KFC hired Dave Thomas to work for them. So mm-hmm. Dave Thomas worked at the Hobby House. Then he became, an, you know, an original employee of KFC. They got into, you know, the, the different arguments. You can read the book and find out how that all that worked out. But then he goes on to open up, you know, his own restaurant, which then I believe in 1969, he opens up in a where I think it was in a vacant showroom in Columbus, Ohio, that his friend who owned a, an auto, an auto dealership had this empty showroom that used to be a kitchen or something bizarre like that. And he opens up the Wendy's. And as you said, he was inspired by QP, fresh meat. That's why they have square burgers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that there's a huge influence here, uh, a QP influence on, on Dave here. Exactly. As a child, uh, eating at the, the Kalamazoo QP, long gone, of course, mm-hmm. and and getting ideas from the QP in Lima, Ohio, uh, he, uh, it, it, he develops Wendy using QP's ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing how that all that all worked out. I mean, that is the story of the book, in my opinion. I mean, there, there's so much. In, I mean, this the history of this particular uh, chain, which no, I'm, I'm guessing that almost no one listening to this podcast is going to have any idea what a QP is. You'll recognize literally every other fast food chain except QP. And I would argue that the QP Hamburgs, the QP Hotel Hamburgs might be the most influential of the bunch. I mean, wouldn't you say that? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, since uh, the uh, QP, so of course, the reason why the decline, it could be, well, the Great Depression is one reason, World War II mm-hmm. era meat shortages and yeah. That was before McDonald's came along. Yeah, 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 right. No, exactly. I mean, there were so many things that were kind of working against fast food at the time. Because and after World War II, I mean, all the reasons that fast food and McDonald's exploded in the 60s were kind of not in place 
when Cupy and White Castle were starting off, which includes, you know, the whole car culture. You know, in the, four, in the 50s, I forget when exactly Eisenhower finished the highway system, but, you know, when we became a, a car-driven country, that's really the beginning of fast food, where you could drive in your car, go and stop, go through a drive-through, get food, and then be out the door. Um, so one of the things that I think is, is kind of interesting in this book is, uh, I forget the location. Let me look and see if I can find it really quickly. You'll know it. I'll just tell you. In one of the, lo- the QP locations, they had a drive-through. But because the drive-through and the parking lot were so small, you couldn't drive up to the drive-in window. You had to drive straight to a turntable. And they would literally, like you're in an automotive dealership, they would turn your car around and then you would go forward to the drive through window. Uh, that's crazy. And that was an operation, I think, up until the 70s or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that, that was an operation until they managed to tear down a building next door to expand the yeah. parking area, which yeah. uh, eliminated the need for the turntable. Yeah, that's I mean, that's that's crazy. And I think, you know, the turntables actually operated outside at first. Right. How did that uh, how did they stop vandals from taking rides on weekends? <laughs> well, they, they moved the controls to in, to indoors. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the that's the move. Uh, so let's talk about uh, I want to talk about some of the interesting locations here. Let's talk about this Lima, Ohio location. Right. It is the current headquarters for Cupy, uh, which is strange because it started in Michigan. The headquarters is, is in Ohio. So tell me, how did how did this uh, this particular particular location germinate out of you know what was essentially a very regional brand? Well, the founder of the Lima Cupy, uh, it went by the na- nickname of Stubbs. Uh, he was inspired by the Cupies that were in Michigan. In fact, I believe he was from Michigan. Mm-hmm. So he moved to Lima, Ohio, to start his hamburger stand, uh, which uh, was first up. Uh, it was a walk-in. Uh, it had one side uh, for the with some stools, and the other side had a, had a drive-through window. Uh, that hamburger stand uh, was then later fully enclosed, and by 1939 was replaced by a full-size restaurant. But because of the narrow parking area. Uh, that's how the turntable uh, came to be. Oh, this is the location with the turntable. That's right. Yes. Okay, the Lima, Ohio one. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, so then they built the parking lot next door. Uh, this is kind of interesting because in 1957, Harrison Shutt is hired. Yeah. And um, through, you know, through a series of events, you know, uh, slowly sub dies off, shut becomes general manager in 1970. Uh, they open up a couple of the locations. But this is how Harrison shut, I believe, to this day is the technic is he's the owner of QP, correct? Uh, yes. Harrison shoot and his son shoot. Scott. Shoot, I got his name wrong. Uh, yeah, Harrison Shoot. So, but that's interesting. Another example, Gary, of a guy who came up through the ranks, worked there. I mean, 1957, he started working, and now he's the owner of the company. I mean, this is the equivalent. You know, I work in entertainment. This is the equivalent of every person who runs a studio is having started in the mailroom, right? I mean, that's kind of how this corporation worked. Yes, uh, people would. Uh go through the ranks, uh, mm-hmm. and if a family member doesn't uh, uh, take it over, uh, but an employee can take it over. Yeah, that's something that I thought was kind of interesting, is that 
a lot of these, if it wasn't the family, it was the employee, uh, an employee or a group of employees. But they were all, a lot of them felt like they were family. I mean, I think there's one story who, um, I don't have it handy, but basically it was a woman who worked at one of these locations for 40 years or something like that. Oh, yes. Um, Tammy? Oh, yes. uh, Tammy Bunker, I believe her name, uh, a longtime employee of the Lansing QP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 40 years, that's a long time to be to be slinging burgers. You're not there that long if you don't like it. Yeah. And uh, and the only people who know how to make uh, Lansing's QP a la burger are Tammy, uh, Gary Weston and Autumn Weston. Oh, so Tam- oh, so she's keeper of the knowledge. I mean, she's ke- she's like a you know like a librarian, a lore keeper. I mean, look, if you're gonna stay at a place that long, you got to make yourself valuable. And having that secret recipe, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so uh, I believe uh, there's one other story I want to talk about. I think the Racine. You see, there's one in Racine, Wisconsin, as well. Correct? Yes, there is. So tell me a little bit about the history of this. Uh, I didn't know this, but in your book, I learned that Racine is known for um, as the garbage disposal capital of the world, which is kind of. Oh, yes. Uh, Racine has a varied industries, uh, which is fortunate. Uh, In fact, uh, the major employer is S.C. Johnson, the household products company. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. Uh, Well, let's talk about this. So we had Stubbs. Uh, This starts. uh, This one opened in 1926 with Speck. Alan Durkee, uh, known as Speck, um, he was he was hired, I believe, uh, in was well, that he was hired in 1926. Yeah, you tell the story. I'm getting it kind of goofed up here, but I know he's involved heavily. Yeah, Dick Stanford was the founder of uh, the Racine QP in 1926, and he sold uh, that location to uh, Walter Block, who, who, uh, well, when Dick Stanford uh, opened this QP, uh, he there was an employee. Uh, Named Alan Durkee, who went by the nickname of Speck. And Durkee remained as an employee. And uh, Speck uh, took over the restaurant in 1957. And then. well, this one's kind of interesting because I believe that this be- this was a real family affair because, you know. I think his brother gets involved. They bring on their sons, uh, you know, in the 1970s. This feels a lot like Bob's Burgers, the TV show, where you have like yes. this family operating this, this burger stand. And there's this weird little twist. So while this family's operating this burger stand, they put in a parking structure on top of the location, which is bizarre. And then I think that was in uh, maybe the 70s. But by the 90s, they realize this parking structure is unsafe. They have to remove it, but by yeah. you can't remove the parking structure without destroying the building. So basically, the city takes it over and gets rid of it, right? Yeah. So so it was torn down in 1997. Uh, right. Uh, the uh, resulting vacant lot was uh, purchased from the city uh, by the. Owner at that time, David Christopite, who unfortunately died uh, last January. So uh, I de- partially dedicated the book to his memory. Uh, so, oh, wow. so he uh, built a new QB uh, on the same site. But during mm-hmm. the construction, uh, the staff was kept busy by catering a picnic uh, for S.C. Johnson. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's some, that's some good money while you're building up a new restaurant. Uh, and this is, you know, uh, this what I, what I love about your book is you have some of these random 
awards that people and teams have won. It was like one of my favorite. There were three favorite things in my book. I love the random awards like this one isn't so random, but the Racine Journal Times awarded the best burger to the Racine QP in 2022. Uh, that's when they won it most recently. Uh, you, a lot of the QPs that went away became parking lots, which is so bizarre. I mean, I would say 80% of the QPs were torn down for parking lots. And all of these like kind of random, uh, these random um, awards. So for example, let's find one that that that's uh, a lot of fun. I think there was, here we go. In Kokomo, Indiana, in 1940, uh, the QP there loved to sponsor bowling teams. And you talk about how in 1940, <laughs> they finished fifth place in the regular five-man division of the annual Indiana State Bowling Tournament. Uh, I love that that is so specific and that you included it. They didn't win, but they got fifth place. Uh, do you have like, a, um, do you enjoy like finding some of these random events and, and uh, tournaments that some of these sponsored teams have won? Oh, yes. Uh yeah, QP and Haleburger did sponsor teams, and uh, some of them won. Uh, but as for QP itself, uh, I'm very proud of the Lansing QP uh, going to Miami to uh, to show off uh, their burgers. Oh yeah, and what and winning first place. Yeah, that one's that one's pretty cool. That one, um, which one, which which location is that? That was the the Western QP a- Burger in Lansing. In Lansing, because there was, I wrote down the specific, uh, there was a specific, oh, oh, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. Uh, It's the Florida South Beach Wine and Food Festival Burger Bash. They won first place in. Uh, That is is super specific. I love that. And that same location in 1973, they sponsored a basketball team that won the Class A Michigan Recreation and Parks Association Championship game. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a fun one. And then I wrote down another one. You know, we got to talk about the ladies uh, in, uh, what was it, Um, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, in 1942, they sponsored a bowling team, and that women's bowling team won the the city championship. So that's yeah. a that's a first that's a first place victory, which, yes. is, which is which is pretty exciting. Um, one more. So in Muncie, Indiana, this is kind of an interesting QP and a fun story. I don't believe it exists anymore, um, but it's most people listening. You may or may not know this, but Muncie, Indiana built YouTube. Uh, with their song Lazy Muncie. Uh, if you don't know that, go back to your history books. Yeah. Uh, but this is kind of a wild ride because this was a QP that was next to a newspaper. And that yes. newspaper wrote about QP uh, <laughs> and then somehow ended up owning the building. This is kind of a wild story. Yeah. Uh, because uh, many of the newspaper staff members had lunch at that QP, uh, it got a lot of press coverage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, both, both the good news and the sad news. Uh, sure. But, but then after the after the owner died uh, under tragic circumstances, uh, the uh, it uh, it was sold to the newspaper, which tore it down for expansion. Yeah, and which is so interesting because you have this newspaper, and I did a whole Fascinating Nouns episode on local newspapers. Uh, They are the engine of of local economy. You know, I don't want to say it's payola, but they did get, I'm sure they got a couple of free lunches for some nice friendly coverage. (laughs) But then they, you know, they end up taking over that part of the QP as, uh, I believe it was storage or something like that. I mean, that was was, uh, kind of wild. And I believe 
that the um, the owner, uh, there was a manager named Hines who ended up owning the QP, and then he tragically commits suicide in that QP. Correct. Uh, so yeah. this was, uh, I mean, this this the story of this particular QP has quite a wild ride, good, bad, and and tragic. Yes, and it's not the only tragic one. Uh, for example, the QP in South Bend, Indiana, uh, that family has has had its share of tragedy. Wow. What what I don't I don't think I read about it. what happened in that one. Yeah, the first tragedy that struck the Harper family was when Ernest Harper's wife, Grace, died of injuries he received in an auto accident. Two years later, Ernest Harper died suddenly while visiting his daughter in Kalamazoo. The Harper family had tragedy again in 1943 when owner Forrest Harper, inducted the Army, died of a heart attack in, in Camp Lee, Virginia, leaving his widow Irene in charge of the South Bend QP, which uh, she uh, reluctantly closed uh, uh, several years later uh, in 1957. Wow. Yeah. So it wasn't. It's not all sunshine and roses in the QP business, but um, a lot of that doesn't have to do with the the chain itself, but just unfortunate circumstances. Um, but before we close, I've got one more. I pulled up uh, another uh, great achievement in the Pontiac, Pontiac, Michigan location in 1942. Uh, they they sponsored a basketball tournament, and the QBBs lost the consolation game to finish fourth place. Uh, and in 1940, oh, this is Winona, Winona, Minnesota. I'll do one more. Uh, they sponsored a bowling team called the QP Lunches, and in 1943, they won their citywide midseason tournament. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, I, I love this stuff. This is great. And both of the previous... Pontiac, Michigan locations are now parking lots. Yes. So there's lots of lots of themes in this book. Uh, a, a fantastic read, Gary. You did such a wonderful job with this. And an interesting story that I don't think most people know. We've only really gotten to the, the beginnings of this. So how can people find you, find the book? Are you on social media? How can people pick up the book? Where well, are you? Well, the book is available uh, online through various sources like Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's available from... Uh, bookstores uh, anywhere in the country uh, that you want to order from. Uh, the publisher is uh, Arcadia Publishing, now South Charleston, South Carolina, so it's easily available. Uh, if you're not local, you can just go online and order it. And I have a Facebook page, which I put together uh, to start the book, called the QP Haleburger Centennial Project, and that's on Facebook. That's great. I will put links to all of that stuff so people can find you uh, as they should. And of course, if you want to find this show, uh, we have a website, fascinatingnouns.com, is where you can find all of this information. And you can find us on social media as well. We are on Twitter, at Fascinating Noun, and on Facebook, at Fascinating Nouns. Uh, Gary, this is so much fun. Thank you for being on the show and for writing this book and really doing a mighty nice summary of the history of QP Burger. And I thank you, Daniel. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there... 
don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.